I'm Peter Marks, theater critic for The Washington Post. I'm Terry Teachout, drama critic for The Wall Street Journal. And I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli, and I write for The New York Times and The New Yorker and Popular Mechanics and Streamlandia <laughs> and whatever, whatever publication will have me. Um, and welcome to episode 51 of Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America, hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of the Theater Communications Group. Can you tell that Elizabeth's family owns a winery? <laughs> or are they grow grapes? <laughs> anyway, sorry. Anyway. Uh, uh, ironically, I do not even partake. Uh-huh. I, never, I never got a taste for it. That that was my uh-huh. idea of um, t- teenage, uh, teenage, you know, revolt was not drinking. <laughs> oh, that's got funny. Uh, anyway, and, you, and we're back. Pandemic uh, be damned. Nothing can stop us. Um, so I, I don't know about you guys, but like the very notion of time has changed for me. I mean, I like a lot of theater people, I had a very predictable schedule where at 7 or 8 p.m. I was at the theater. And at 8 p.m. I'm home and I don't know what to do with myself. So Yeah, I, if I don't been, have a deadline, I don't even know what day it is usually. Yeah, I I don't know either. Um, anyway, so we're, Three in the Alley is still here and uh, we're still in New York and I'm uh, I'm calling from, from Brooklyn and Peter and Terry are actually at opposite ends of Manhattan and Erica is deep in Long Island or is that deep on Long Island? Not sure. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a lot of talk, we have a lot to talk about today, uh, but before we get going, um, T- Terry wanted to share something with our listeners. Um, as some of you know, my wife, Hillary whom I referred to on this podcast and on the web as Mrs. T, died a month ago from complications arising from the double lung transplant that she received on March 1st after a seven-year wait. Her death has been a grievous blow to me, especially in this terrible time of enforced isolation. But I've been sustained by the consolation of work and buoyed up by the love and support of friends and strangers alike especially the friends gathered around me right now in this electronic room, and I am coping as well as can be expected. In her memory, my friend, the painter Makoto Fujimura, has started the Hillary Teachout Grant, an emergency relief fund for performing and other artists. Hillary's love of all the arts was boundless. No audience ever had a more enthusiastic member, and it is deeply gratifying to me to know that this program will honor her blessed memory for information on how to donate to the grant or to apply for one google hillary teachout grant that is hillary with one l terry um that is lovely um and uh you know imprinted on my memory is the two of you seated in theater after theater next to each other and I will always cherish the memory of the two of you together. And um, I'm amazed at your strength. It's been inspirational for me to watch you. And, and, and we, our hearts and our souls all sort of share your loss. And we're so happy you're back with us to talk about theater, this thing we all love. Yes. And that, Hil- and that Hillary loved. Yes, she did. So she's part of this show now and forever. And I know that listeners out there share that feeling and are thinking of her. 
as we talk about the future of the theater and what's next for it and for us. Yes. Uh, and and we're in this all together. So there's that. And um, I'm again um, welcome back to uh, to our to our family. Thank you um, all. Thank you all. Um, we're going to talk today about you know the, this this predicament we're all in, uh, this uncharted territory for the theater, this this time when theaters are trying to figure out what their next step is, and we're all trying to figure out when we're going to see uh, theater again in its natural habitat. Um, it's even raising questions for all of us about the definition of theater. Uh, is what we're seeing online in all the different shapes and formats, is it theater or something adjacent to theater? You know, uh, theater is the only art form that defines itself. It's, 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 its name comes from the space we share. You know, uh, dance is dance and movies are movies and television is you know, TV. Is These are all mediums that, um, that are, you know, the, the way into those forms Ours is the space around the form. So if that changes, we have to think about, is that a permanent change or do we just go back to what it was when this is all over? Um, and I think you yourself, Peter, have put the, the case for the prosecution, so to speak, <laughs> most eloquently in the piece that you wrote for the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago on this very subject, which has stimulated an enormous amount of... of conversation and I would say controversy as well. Yeah. Well, uh, my, my point was just that I was watching plays being transferred to tape, uh, basically intact through the, from the vantage point of maybe two, sometimes one, two or three cameras, some of it from archival stuff uh, that companies had amassed over the years and some of it newly shot tape. But it was a very unsatisfying and is a very unsatisfying way to experience plays and musicals for me online. It looks very static and wooden and sometimes uh, overly theatrical. You know, uh, modulating emotion and mood and presentation is something that we don't really think about uh, that much. Uh, most theater directors are not uh, directors for Zoom or for video. And so it's an adjustment. And I was just raising the issue of the technical problems that seem to be uh, coming at us and also, you know, alienating me from wanting to well, watch. You might call, part of that is what you might call the Ethel Merman problem, which is that um, a whole generation of performers were taught correctly to project to the back wall. And when they got in front of a camera, as Merman herself did, uh, what came out was something that just didn't translate to the new medium. It was, it had, it was interesting in its own way, but it was not the same thing as being in that space with her, that resonant space. Uh, and, uh, uh, that's why she never had a film career of any substance or Mary Martin for that matter. Um, are, are you guys seeing, you know, are you, how much are you watching of theater online? Elizabeth? I'm, I'm watching, I'm watching a fair amount, but, uh, admittedly, not that, not that much, and I often find myself like my attention wandering after half an hour. Uh, but some of it has to do with the fact that I think 
Some of the recordings are not great. It's one or two cameras and it's, it's just, just doesn't really work. You can't just plop a camera down in the back row and just hope for the best. And for a while, that's what, you know, is a kind of solution. It's kind of jury rigged solution. Uh, but when you watch, um, I mean, the production that everybody's talking about as being an exemplar of the way to do it are the national theater productions. And they are really great. I find myself watching them with great pleasure. That Twelfth Night was so wonderful. I watched the whole thing. And it's a play mm. in real life. I always think, oh, my God, I don't need to see that one again because I've seen it so many times. But the production was a real pleasure. And it was incredibly well filmed. Um, they so use eight really cameras. Well they use eight cameras. And you can well, feel that's the th thing. Right. Right. It's, they spend it's money. Great. Right. It's great. They're really thought through. Uh, I've been watching a lot of the uh, Comédie Française one uh, that are also very, very good. Uh, and because many of them were actually professionally shot for television broadcasts. Uh, so, again, they're also really thought through for that. And they really work. It's too bad that they're not subtitled in English, but um, they're, they're great recordings. And similar, Charles Bune also has lots that are actually subtitled in English, and they're really well done. So those I watch, but the ones that I cannot watch is like, I'm going to put one camera in the back of the room and just, and, and then, you know, and it's unfair because it's just unfair to the smaller companies. You know, it's expensive to get that stuff. And also you had to have the foresight to have some kind of deal. I mean, the National Theater was doing that stuff in movie theaters for years. They were ready. They had, they were just ready to go. Um, but you know what I've been enjoying, actually? I've been enjoying the Zoom readings of plays. Uh, those have been really super fun. Uh, they're kind of like, little rock and roll it just barreling through and they've been very enjoyable those i like it's the middle ground of the the crap one or two cameras setup we don't know what we're doing that i just i cannot watch that actually is doing a disservice to theater but oh well we do have to think about you know i do think you know you know we jaded you know theater critics who get to see tons of stuff you know, there is the other side of the story, which people have enlightened me about uh, ah, in response to my story <laughs> uh, about people who live in parts of the country that are not, you know, inundated with theater, that is very limited in terms of professional theater companies. Uh, they're, you know, feeling a world opening up to them uh, of of pieces that they get and they're getting to see actors they normally wouldn't on stages. Uh, so there is something to be said for that. I think it's a very small audience. And I also think that what we're seeing is uh, theater, the theater world migrating to new ideas of how to do this. That's what's really mm -hmm. exciting. Mm -hmm. yes. And I, and that's, you know, how quickly the adapting is happening to this. The adjusting is happening. I don't think we're going to see a lot more a material like, you know, just filmed stage play. Yeah. Although I know Terry has actually enjoyed that experience too. Well, more than that, I've been going at it systematically. As soon as the theaters were closed, um, uh, the Wall Street Journal asked me, all right, what do you want to do? And I looked around and I saw that a few companies and their number rapidly grew, had managed to film in one way or another their last productions, the ones that they had up when the theaters were closed. Usually what they were filming was the last preview or the opening night or the, the last dress rehearsal. Uh, some of them were, com well, they were pretty much all completely improvising. No one had 
the superstructure necessary, the infrastructure necessary to do filmed theater. So they said, okay, what can we do in the time we have with the resources that we can pull together? Um, uh, the first one to come out was a, was a one camera. It was a straight archival broadcast that was done live on Facebook. But immediately after that, uh, the, the medium and larger sized regional theaters started to put more skin in the game. Um, the first thing that I saw that made me think, okay, this is, this is pointing in the right direction was when uh, ACT in San Francisco uh, remounted uh, 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 Tony Stone, uh, the baseball play, which had a, a, a very successful run here off-Broadway in New York, Lydia Diamond's play. Um, they did it with two cameras, but they did it with two extremely sophisticatedly directed and edited cameras. I thought it was a three-camera shoot. Just to give a little background, uh, when you watch a, a sitcom, a filmed sitcom, you are usually watching a live performance that has been filmed by three cameras whose feed is intercut. That's the basic standard f historically for the film sitcom. And my own feeling had been that you probably couldn't do this with less than three cameras, which for a small theater company is a big deal. But um, ACT pulled it off. I assumed they were doing a three-camera shoot. Um, they made the audience audible on the soundtrack. Uh, didn't show it, but uh, you could. The, the audience was part of the experience. The performance was pretty much exactly the same kind of performance that we saw here on stage in New York. Uh, I found it completely successful and involving. Now, I'll grant you, obviously, at this moment in history, I'm on the side of the show. But uh, I kept watching the other shows that have been rolled out over the past two months. And it, it seems that each one is approaching the problem in a different way. They're finding their footing. They're figuring out what to do. Uh, with the, when you have more resources, you get a better show but you don't need eight cameras to get a show that works or to draw an audience. Uh, the Journal did a story about Tony Stone. Uh, their, their webcast brought in $64,000 uh, from online payment, enough to pay for the whole show. And theater, that's a lot of money. And it means that they can, yeah. they can do that kind of thing again. The most sophisticated uh, production I have seen was uh, when Syracuse Stage got one performance, I, I, I can't remember if it was the dress rehearsal or opening night, of Amadeus uh, up. And they got, they knew that they were going to have to close the next night. So they got the local PBS station to come in with four cameras. And it was on a, a kind of a semi-thrust stage so that the aisles were used for part of the production. The audience is is visible at more than one point in the production. Amadeus is, is not a small play, but it's not a huge play either. This, this, the setting is simple. And it was the most, I mean, short of the film, it was the most effective production of the play I've ever seen. It, a part of it was that it was fabulously well played. And, you know, Jason O'Connell was Amadeus and he was amazing. But it worked on the screen as an experience on the screen for me. You know what bugs me about uh, the plays just filmed and put on, thrown onto uh, the web 
is the lighting, the technical aspects just look so shabby often. The fading out, the blackouts, it's, it's not meant for this medium. We are so much more sophisticated than what we're seeing. You really have to forgive so much that as, as Elizabeth says, your mind sort of like it get disengages. It just doesn't hold you. That's my problem. You know, I have just not found this in the ones that I've seen. And I reviewed a half dozen very different kinds of shows and setups so far. Uh, this is not how I'm responding to them. I mean, I, I think part of it is you need to go where they are and, and to accept that this is improvised and to try to find in the show right. what it has to offer. But I, you know, everybody is figuring out how to do this. They, they haven't had much time. We're about to run out of these shows. The pipeline right. will soon empty out. But every artistic director I've talked to thinks that some kind of streamed webcasts are going to become, if, if Actors' Equity permits it, an integral part of how theater companies, especially regional companies, operate. Because it's allowing them, you know, I, you know I'm the guy who flies out to uh, San Diego to see a show. And nobody else is doing that. I right. have been saying for years, uh, what I wanted to see was PBS to do a series of regional theater broadcasts. And now I realize it needs to happen from the bottom up. If companies can produce their mm -hmm. own webcasts of, of, of quality comparable to what I saw in, in the Syracuse stage Amadeus production and some others that I've seen, um, uh, the Alley Theaters, uh, 1984, was of equal technical facility. Um, what is going to happen is that people all over the country are going to discover that there's theater all over the country, that it's not just the twice yearly Broadway uh, uh, five camera setup of present laughter. And uh, what I'm seeing so far has... I am, uh, I, I'm just saying, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm just, I just don't think, I'm, I just don't think people are going to watch that stuff. I just don't think it's going to be a draw. I don't think it's going to be a gateway to theater. I just don't think, I, I, I just don't think it works. I yeah. think that's a pipe dream. If you think people are going to get into theater via that kind of broadcast from regional, I don't think it's going to happen. Um, it's a, I'd rather honestly watch a really good Netflix show than a regional production of present laughter. Who wants to watch that? I don't. <laughs> Yeah. Actually, you know what? That felt like a slight original theater. I would not watch. I would not watch a crap New York production of Present Laughter, or even a good one. I'd rather watch a Netflix show. I'm sorry. I'm I'm, I'm going to go out and say it. I guess that's where my love for theater stops. I just. Mm. I, it's all right. <laughs> this is not going to be a gateway to theater. The 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 video the webcasts are not going to be. That's really a half like a deep. You're either already in theater. Into, into theater or, or you're not. And if you're not, video is not going to get you into it, no matter if it's coming from Chicago, from New York, or from wherever. It is not going to happen. I'm very, very, uh, very pessimistic about this, actually. I, I'll hmm. tell you what does work. I think it maybe universally could be agreed upon. If we all watched the Sondheim tribute uh, that was done on Sunday. All right, uh, Elizabeth will probably not agree with me. Never mind, I take that back. Uh, uh, she's not a Sondheimaholic as uh, Terry and I are, but uh, the product, the producing of 
individual songs, the music done well by, you know, 40 odd Broadway stars uh, was to me a beautiful and effective use of this, of the medium. Uh, they all knitted together, edited very well. It wasn't live, but it was close to live. And I thought for that purpose, uh, someone anywhere in the country or indeed the world could become infected by music, so to speak, from Broadway. And that really could happen. I think it's an easily transferred, uh, especially when done well, uh, 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 source for enjoyment and spreading the gospel of musical theater. Yes, but I think uh, the bite-sized approach of something like that tribute is very different from watching a whole play. True. Yeah, totally. That's, like that's a very different demand. I totally agree. On 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 the thing. I mean, that was actually a perfect format for for the video format. Yeah, I um, agree. I agree. I agree. So they, so they're well, going to figure that out. That's what's going to be sort of, you know, the next wave. I'll tell you what, though, one thing is for sure. If it's not streaming, it may not be anything else because we are now seeing uh, everybody's biting the bullet and saying, okay, we're canceling. Right. Uh, no summer season. Right. We won't be back until the fall. You know, I, I, three, as, as early as three or four weeks ago, artistic directors in the regions were saying to me, re, not, for the, not for attribution, but they were saying realistically, we do not expect to come back until September at the earliest. Right. We are very concerned about the willingness of people to come to a theater. And if that's true, and I think it is, then um, we're going to need streaming and we're going to need to find ways to make it effective to do stream performances at arise organically from the properties of the platform, like Zoom, for example, and give people an experience that, that will uh, give them something they want to see. Because for a while, there's just not going to be anything else. Right. I fear that every actor I know is out of work. They all fear it. Um, well, I, I'm not I'm not sure that, you know, I mean, you know, there are some companies that are announcing they're going to come back with, uh, you know, Barrington Stage just announced they're going to be, you know, ripping out most of their seats and in requiring right. people to wear masks, uh, I'm going to find out if I can expense a hazmat suit and 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 justify ah! and justify it as summer theater coverage. Uh, I you know I don't know how this is going to work, and I'm really very skeptical about the idea of being required to watch a show in a mask. I just don't see it as a viable way to uh, spend an enjoyable amount of time in a theater. As far as I know, Barrington Stage is the only company in America that has announced a summer season with clearly discussed plans for how to make it work in terms of safety. Mm -hmm. So this is, a, this is not just a thought experiment. This is a real experiment. Right. And uh, how it goes is going to tell us it's going to be a really early indicator of how willing people are to come back to the theater and under what circumstances. I suspect, among other things, there's going to be a big age differential. I think that older people are going to be much more reluctant, and this is what scares Broadway as well, much more reluctant to come back into a theater until some X point when they feel reassured. And, uh, you know, God bless uh, Julie Boyd at Barrington Stage for 
but being able to put her chin out and say, okay, we're going to try to make it happen because she's going to teach us all one way or the other, or more likely somewhere in between, um, what is going to come of this. It's important. Yeah. Mark Harris wrote a very uh, good and very depressing article for, for New York Magazine about the future for Broadway. And he wrote that a few weeks ago, so it's probably already outmoded. But um, one of the things he pointed out, you know, I had assumed, I was thinking, oh, you know, shows like Phantom, they'll come back. They'll be the first to come back. Well, actually, what he brought up, and it's very true, is that the audience for these shows is like 95% tourists, and they're not right. coming back right. for a long time. Right. New Yorkers have already seen these shows. They're not. Right. They don't go to these shows. Right. So the audience for a lot of Broadway is tourists, not coming back for quite a while. And older people, especially for a lot of subscription based houses like Manhattan Theater Club. That's very worrying for them. Right. Yeah. Anyway. So should we move on to some of some letters that we got? Because uh it's pretty clear we're going to have many more opportunities to talk about this in the next podcast, <laughs> the next 10 or 15 podcasts. I think so. Because uh, it's, yeah. it's not going away. Uh, so uh, let's open up the floor, so to speak, with some questions. Um, and, and Terry, do you want to get us started? Yes. This question comes to us from Craig Renapia via Twitter. He's one of our most faithful viewers viewers. We're viewing each other. Someday you'll be able to view us, but right now he's one of our most faithful listeners. And he asks, while confined to quarters, I found myself blowing the dust off a lot of things on the book and DVD shelves. Any old acquaintance has been renewed. I'm having trouble reading. I have real trouble reading serious books right now. I, I it's, I'm obviously there are other factors in my, uh, life that have thrown me off the track, but it's, it's movies that are, and of course the stuff that I've watched for, for my job, but it's movies that are keeping me afloat, old movies and, and new ones as well. But, um, they've sort of become my theater. Last night I was, for example, I was watching, uh, from TCM, uh, William Dieterle's a film version of, of Stephen Vincent Benet's The De Devil and Daniel Webster with Walter Houston playing the devil. And I it, it completely, I haven't seen this film for a couple of years. It completely drew me in, completely distracting. And, and this is, uh, film has become, at least for the moment, the substitute medium for me. But for some reason, my concentration has, has been shaken over the last month uh, for, as I say, for rather obvious reasons. And it is affecting my ability to read books. I don't, I finished a book that I started a month ago. That's for me, uh, ridiculous and embarrassing, but it's the way it is for me. Mm. Elizabeth, what about you? I, I, uh, I have been watching, I had mentioned that earlier, but I've been watching quite a few of the uh, Comédie Française uh, broadcasts. They have one every day and some of them are recent and some of them are much older. In fact, right after we're done, uh, uh, with this podcast, I'm going to watch their showing a, uh, their uh, 1973 production of Giraudoux's Ondine with a teenage Isabella Jani. I've never seen it. It's kind of mythical in France. So they're kind of like unearthing these old things that many of them have heard of but have never seen. So it's, it's been incredible. Uh, but it's also probably because I'm a little it homesick. It sounds wonderful. 
I'm a little homesick uh, right now. I miss my family in France. So uh, watching a lot of French stuff has been, and I'm also working for on another story that involves watching a lot of French stuff. So uh, there's been a lot of that. And that, that's, that's what I've been doing. But yeah, the Comédie Française stuff is so great, is so, so wonderful. Um, I highly recommend it. And I think they're showing, uh, yeah, unfortunately, there's no subtitles. So that's, that's a little tricky, but that's what I've been doing. You know, uh, I hear you too. I, uh, I, I find interestingly that I'm not particularly uh, nostalgic right now. Hmm. I I don't feel that connected to or feel this need to touch base with my past. I want the reassurance that there's a future. And I think that that is reflected in the fact that I am kind of voraciously uh, devouring anything uh, fresh and original uh, in, in any mode I can find it. And, and actually that's happened for me with books and it's happened with, to me with, uh, with, uh, television. And, uh, I have subscribed to a, to a European <laughs> channel called MHZ that re, that, uh, I pay, I forked over the 89 bucks for the year and it, it streams all these European television series, you know, with a very high quality and of all range of dramatic and thriller and mystery kind of themes. And that has been my sustenance. I, I am, and I am a constantly, I have, I have a huge appetite for it. <laughs> and I think it goes to the fact that I want to believe that after this, there, you know, that, that all our impulses for uh, affecting the culture in a positive way will, will still be birthed. That we don't have to rely on um, just reflecting on the way it was. It will be again. I think it's a. I do think it's an optimistic I, impulse. No, I, I I agree with that, and I think my uh, my Comédie Française binge right now is because it's it's. I never usually. I'm trying so hard to keep up with all the new stuff, um, in in regular times that it's been kind of great to be able to take a pause and look back at all the things that I had missed uh, or not seen. But uh, yeah, I'm. Looking forward to resuming the, and I'm also consuming a lot of new stuff. Um, okay, so next letter, uh, we uh, we got mail from Singapore, which I believe is the first <laughs> for us. So I'm very excited. Um, we actually had addressed one of Albert Tai's questions, uh, which was about what to expect at the theater uh, in the age of pandemic. Uh, but he had two more, so we're going to go pretty fast there. Uh, so Albert wrote, I'm a great fan of, of immersive theater. What's your favorite immersive production and what made it work for you? I'm going to start and I'm going to say I used to be a big fan of immersive theater and I am so over it. I'd be happy if I don't see immersive theater for the next 10 years or so. <laughs> so the, the shtick aspect of it now for me completely overshadows anything else that could be happening. So I am not... Uh, I've, I've kind of, it's shrunk on me as opposed to growing on me. It's, it's, it has shrunk on me. Um, you know, it's, uh, I, I'm, you know, I, it feels so far away from me right now as a concern. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I can't even, I'm sorry. I can't even like sort of put my head around what that feeling is like. I mean, the fact that I've been sitting in my own apartment for 54 days straight is has you know left me feeling that immersive is basically a shower you know that's the immersive experience for me and to you know 
to start thinking about gathering what I, you know, gathering with other people. Uh, yeah, I guess, you know, grocery store shopping feels like an immersive experience, but I don't have any, you know, I, I've, I'm losing touch with that whole uh, part of uh, uh, theatrical life. Well, I'm going to go nostalgic. The first time I ever came to New York was in a, on a college trip in the winter of 1975-76. And uh, we saw a little bit of everything, uh, you know, opera, museums, Broadway. And one of the shows we saw was Harold Prince's immersive, famous immersive production of Candide. Uh, the revival that put Candide back on the map made it revivable again because the book was uh, rewritten. But an entire theater was reconstructed uh, to give this show uh, with seating all over the theater on multiple levels. And I, who had at this point done high school theater and now at that moment seen two Broadway shows uh, in the preceding week, I had never seen or imagined anything like this. It was, it was phantasmagorical, and I will never forget it as long as I live. And even though Prince uh, subsequently revived Candide at New York City Opera and had a long history with the show, that production, uh, it, just, it, it was one of those experiences that makes you realize, and this, this goes back to what you said earlier, Peter, that theater in the theater surrounded by people, breathing their air, sharing their space, is the most radical and thrilling form of art imaginable. And I can, I can close my eyes and see Louis J. Stadlin in that production. And, and the orchestra was, was spread out on different levels all over it. It was just, it was a miracle. So, uh, you know, I've seen immersive shows since then that I really liked. I, I think there is a shticky aspect to it, but there's also a meaningful aspect to it. But mm. for me, the great benchmark is always going to be how Princess Candide. All right. And uh, Albert, uh, part three of his uh, three-part question. That's, that's how you, you sneak, you, you were sneaking them in, sneaking yeah. them in, three in one. <laughs> uh, so he's, he also asked... Yeah, well, asked, they're good, too. <laughs> well, actually, this, I really like this one. Um, yeah. It appears to be a critic's conceit to be able to reference as many other works when reviewing a production. Like... This is like the X version of Y's production of Z. For non-critics like me, the information has totally no added value whatsoever if we haven't seen any of those productions. So is this referencing just part of a critic's playbook or is it more than that? That is a very oh, good question. I love that. Is that is a hell of a good question. Oh, Albert, come on. <laughs> you know, I, I, of course a critic is going to use the history in, in, in his or her head or their head uh, to to put in perspective what we're seeing on the stage. Uh, that is not, I don't think that is, if that has no value, then neither does uh, uh, reviewing a show uh, in the present that you aren't seeing either. I mean, we're always trying to illuminate uh, things that you, that readers have not seen yet. I mean, that's the, the vast majority of what we do. And I, I think that it's very useful to have reference points uh, to be able to understand that, first of all, not everything is you know novel uh, in our experience, that a lot of it is dependent on what other people have done. And it's a way of also paying homage to all the other uh, um, uh, uh, work 
that influences someone and helps us explain why or why not a piece is noteworthy. Yeah, yes. No, I I tell you what, though. It depends on how we do it. Oh, exactly. No, no, I was going to say that exactly. If you are referencing the older, another production, another piece of work with that, putting that other piece of work in context, then it is meaningless. And then you're addressing like 10 people. And that feels very, uh, it's just really bad writing for me. But if you manage to put it in context and explaining, okay, this version of, this is very useful, especially when you're talking about a play that is done a lot, for instance, like, this version of Uncle Vania stands out from that version because that version was doing this or that, and this new one is doing this or that. So if you put it in context, if you put everything in context, of course it takes more work, but you have to think it through, and that's part of the job. And that's actually my pet peeve in music reviewing when people say, oh, this band sounds like Ben X crossed with Ben Y. Well, that's not saying anything. That's just really lazy. So... Using the reference as a crutch is, is lazy, but using them in context, yes, obviously you have to use other pieces of work. No, nothing exists in a vacuum. Yeah, it's the essence of criticism. And, also, well, and if, you're dis, if, you're, if you are comparing performances, you mustn't assume that anybody's, I mean, not everybody has seen Patti LuPone in, in Gypsy. You, you, it's not just enough to say, well, she was great, but you say, okay, she did this mm-hmm. and she did that. And here's why one works better than the other or why they both work in different ways. But, you know, if you're not careful, you do end up being just, oh, well, you know, when I was young, they did it better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it, you, you've got to, got to put these things in focus. But when you do that, when you do that, I think it becomes a useful tool uh, and yes, of course, we have been, all of us, how many years have we all been seeing theater taken together? That's a frightening thought. We've seen a lot of theater. We have a lot of memories. They're not just precious. They're illuminating. But our job is to get the illumination out of our heads and onto the paper. Well, let us move on to our picks then. Yeah. And uh, my pick, Peter, is a, a webcast of a show. I recently saw and reviewed uh, the Goodman Theater's webcast version of the Chicago premiere of Jocelyn Bio's Schoolgirls, or the African Mean Girls play, which had a very successful off-Broadway run in 2017. Uh, it is, like most such webcasts, a preview performance that was taped just before the company was shut down by the pandemic. But, and this is, I think, unique, the Goodman has already announced plans to restage the production live once the company finally reopens. And I think that's a great idea. But if you only saw it this way, I'm pretty sure you would have gotten a good sense of the show because it's a small cast, single set production taped with an audience present and audible. I find that is important. And the play itself, which I missed in New York, is a gem. It's a, it's a comedy that starts off as a race transposed spoof of Mean Girls, but it gradually metamorphoses into a smart, very tough-minded study of intra-racial prejudice in a community of dark-skinned Africans. There's nothing heavy-handed about it at all, but it's tough. Now, Lillianne Brown is the director in the all-woman ensemble, which is led by Sierra Dawn and Kiri Corder, is just terrific. Uh, once it goes up on stage, I'm going to go out to the Goodman and re-review it. And it's really going to be interesting for me to see the contrast between the two versions. 
What you seeing lately, Elizabeth? Well, I'm a, I, I watched a, a reading, a Zoom reading of a play. Uh, I believe it's a new play by Justin Sayers. I don't think it's been produced or I haven't heard of it. Uh, it's called The Ducks, and it's a uh, spoof of The Birds, the uh, Hitchcock um, uh, movie. Oh, really? Yes, The Ducks. And uh, what drew me to it was the cast, which has some of the finest comic actors in business right now. Uh, Jeff Hiller, Jen Harris... Drew Droger, uh, among others. And what was interesting, the, the play kind of flagged about halfway through, but there was a very smart use of props and backgrounds on Zoom, uh, which, again, it's like I think people are figuring out how to use this and how to make the most of it. Yeah. And that that uh, that event, I'm not sure it was recorded. I think it may have just been live. Um was another sign that people are really trying to make the most of the situation. And there was some laugh out loud moment for which I was very grateful. Uh, you know, there were costumes and props and, and backgrounds and, and masks, and I don't know how they did it. Um, and I, if I can sneak in another plug for Mary Neely, the LA actress who's been doing playbacks of musicals and who has become, I, I think, the first... I just hit now it's weird to say viral sensation, but she really has become that with her incredibly elaborate solo uh, lip syncing version of uh, musicals. It is amazing what she can do. Uh, and I've watched those videos many, many times. <laughs> so just look her up. Mary Neely, uh, everything is on Twitter. And Peter? Yeah, I love Mary Neely. God bless her. Let's have her on. Let's oh, have God, her on. yes. Yeah. She is fantastic. That's a good idea. Oh, my God. Yeah. So uh, I am going to talk about I'm just going to recommend something I have not seen yet because it is <laughs> as, as as of the time that we are taping, it's not going to be online uh, available till uh, tonight, which is Wednesday, uh, April 29th. It's at the Public Theater. On their website and on YouTube Live, it's it's Richard Nelson's latest uh, play, basically, in the Apple Family plays, which many people know are uh, gathering around a table, a family, uh, an extended family in Rhinebeck, New York, and talking about issues of the day, of their lives, how they intersect. He's been There have been several of them, very successful, wonderful plays. This one's called What Do We Need to Talk About? It's a 60-minute play. Uh, featuring some of the members of the Richard Nelson uh, ensemble company, you might call it, including Marianne Plunkett and J.O. Sanders, who are married in real life, and other actors like Stephen Kunkin. Uh, uh, you can, you'll be able to watch it online either uh, going forward for several days on the public website and on YouTube Live. So I, I encourage people to do that. And in fact, this is going to be a, a, I predict a widely reviewed production in the manner of a stage play. It's all, it's called it's it's yep. uh, subtitle is Conversations on Zoom. So uh, presumably the format is a Zoom format, and we'll probably talk about this next time. Um, and uh, I I just think that it's another I another sense of how this this form is uh, evolving, uh, and. Uh, it's of course free, and uh, and and also the other Apple Family plays are currently streaming on uh, wnet.com. Mm -hmm. Yeah, on the PBS uh, app too. If people love that. So with that, um, 
Elizabeth and Terry, it's time to wrap this one up. I'm Peter Marks. And I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. And I'm Terry Teachout. You've been listening to Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America, hosted by American Theater Magazine. Our producer is the far-flung Erica Wong. <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at Three on the Isle, all spelled out, and write to us at threeontheisle at gmail.com, also spelled out. Please let us know what other topics, even if they're not coronavirus related. I mean, please, please help us. Uh, anyway, tell us what other topics you'd like to hear on future episodes, and don't forget to leave us a rave review on iTunes or Google Play. Thank you all for listening as always. Uh, we will uh, be with you again soon. From the makeshift of the aisles, we have jerry-rigged in our homes. <laughs> yes, I have, I have made tape. I have made a nail with tape. It's leading to my couch. Oh my God, you're a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> uh.